invitation, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation. A lot of revelation today, a lot of revelation today, but that's good. We love the book of Revelation. For those who don't know, the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's known as what's called apocalyptic literature. And you might be thinking, oh my gosh, the apocalypse, world's going to end. No, it's not like exactly like that. Apocalypse literally means to unveil, to, to move the curtain back, to, to show what's behind the veil. So yes, it talks about the end times. Yes, it talks about what's going to happen at the end of days. But it's also telling us the eternal truths behind the veil. You know, what's going on in the throne room? What's going on with God and his angels and his angel armies and his conflict with, with Satan and with all of his fallen angels? The, the veil is taken away and we're given a glimpse. The Apostle John was given a glimpse of what these ultimate eternal realities are and ultimately what will be our situation, what the situation of the church is at the end time. So with that introduction. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, almost at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21 verses 5 to 8, and it says, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God bless us this morning, right? Father God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your eternal truths. We thank you that your word stands for eternity, O oh God, that what you decree, O oh God, is true, and it is good, and it is faithful. I pray that you would give me the power this morning to preach what you would have me preach, and you will give your people ears to hear and eyes to see what is being unveiled to them, Lord God, in your word. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I have a couple nephews, um, they love video games, they're probably better than me. They, they, I, I grew up playing video games, but I don't know what it is with, these, with kids, they just learn things faster, get better at things faster, so my nephews can probably kick my butt in just about any video game, but it wasn't always like that. I used to kick their butt in video games, and I was very proud of it when I did it. But, but when they were younger, we used to play video games, and when we play these video games, sometimes you hand them a controller and it's not plugged in just because you don't actually want to play with them. You just want them to think they're playing with you. But, you know, sometimes you actually would hand them a controller plugged in, and you'd play, you know, a campaign together. You would do something together, you know. You guys would be working together. We'd be working together towards some goal in this video game, and... They just weren't that good, and we would never get anything done, never get anything completed, because they just, they were young. They just, they weren't any good. They couldn't get it done, and it makes me think, you know, when I did that, when I would play those games with my nephews, when I would give them a controller and plug it in, we would do a campaign together, and, you know, we would never get it done. It would never get finished, and I would think, what is the goal of all this? Was the goal for us to beat the entire video game together? Was the goal to just, you know, 
snap our fingers, get it done? Because if that was the goal, I wouldn't have given them the controller to begin with because they were just bad. And if I wanted that, I'd just do it on my own or I'd, you know, call my brother over and we'd get it done even quicker. What was the point of it all? Well, the point wasn't just to get it all done perfectly, all right there. The goal was for us to do something together. The goal was us to do something and build memories and build relationships and, and be together as an uncle and a nephew. And this is much like how God interacts with us. You know, we mess up a lot. You know, he asks us to do things and we don't do it sometimes. And it makes us think, you know, God, why would you choose to use us? Why would we do anything with you? We're just going to keep messing up. We're just going to be at fault over and over and over and over again. But we must realize that it's not always about just getting it done, you know, the best way possible. No, God is looking for something deeper. He's looking for something more relational. He's looking for something more intimate than just getting tasks done. And when we look at this passage, we look at the eternity and the entirety of God and God's word and God's will. When we look at verse 5 and 6, we look at the eternal, all-powerful God, and he speaks and he says, I am making all things new. When we think about the vastness of God in time and space, he's so much more than just timeless. He's so much more than just without beginning and with end. And his words are, are, are so much more than just lasting forever. No, when he speaks, those words become our eternal reality. When we read the book of Revelation, his words are not just words that last a really long time. They're words that come true. They're words that change the world. They're, wor they're words that change lives, that, that give freedom to his people and to his creation. His words carry weight. His words, when at the creation, when he spoke, when his words came from his mouth, things were done. Things were created. The whole universe was created. When he speaks, it doesn't just last a really long time. It actually does stuff. It's actually powerful. There's power in the word of God. And this is God speaking at the end of days and he's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega and I am making all things new. What does this new reality look like? Well, when you read through the book of Revelation, this new reality has no more tears. It has no more pain. It has no more war. No more conflict. There is no more sin. No more consequences of sin. No more failure, no more mistakes, no more messing up. It is perfection because he has made all things new. Our current reality, what we live in right now, how amazing it is here in the Mission Church, will pale in comparison to what God has for us in his kingdom. With the, 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 the privileges and the rights and everything we experience here in America that we love so much, will we'll not even compare to the beauties and the wonders that will be in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing will compare to that final reality that God has for his church. And this is why God commands John, write. Everything you hear, write it. Everything you see, write it. Why? Because we will never truly understand this without God's word. We'll never reach the utopia. We'll never reach the true golden age of human existence. Why? Because we mess up. 
We fail over and over again. Our, our faith is not a utility. Our faith is not just utilitarian to, to reach a goal of, of human excellence and to make society better and to make our lives better, which are, are nice things, but they're not the goal. I love what William Hendrickson says in his commentary about this passage. He says, only God can make new. People may vainly imagine that by means of better education, a better environment, better legislation, and a more equitable distribution of wealth, they are going to usher in a new era, a golden age, the utopia of, uh, the utopia of man's ardent desires, but their dream remains a dream. Neither economic, neither economic nor disarmament conferences, neither better schools nor share the wealth programs are going to bring about a really golden age, a new heaven and earth, or a new order. It is only God, through his spirit, who makes all things new. He alone can restore and renew man and the universe. Only God can make new. Only God can usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Only God can truly do this. Our faith and the Bible is not given so that we can just create a better society and, and live our best lives now. No, there's something deeper going on with the word of God. There's something deeper going on than just, you know, getting principles and, and, and rules for life to, to make yourself more comfortable and, and make things better. Don't get me wrong. These things are nice. We want to live comfortable lives. We want that security around us. We want, we want less war. We want less conflict. We want, we want more equity and more equality. But the reality is, is that we will never get what God has for us by our own strength, by just taking the word of God and, and trying to do our best with it. Because that's not the point of it all. The word of God is not just a utility. Our faith is not in these things. These things will never be truly obtained until the fullness of God's kingdom is realized here on earth. And he says it is done, as he does in this passage. So, this means that our faith is not in politicians, it's not in parties, it's not in legislation, it's not in new scientific discoveries or the cutting edge of culture and technology. Our faith isn't in, in you know, if Trump's president or Biden's president. Our, our, our faith is not in the Democrats or the Republicans. Our, our faith is not in, you know, new sciences and new technologies. No, our faith is in Jesus our King of kings, our Lord of lords, our Savior, that is the only one who can make new. The only one. Our faith is solely in the eternal God alone who stands alone as the King of kings at the end of time. The point is not to focus on creating a utopia or a golden age in our present age, but to focus and strive towards the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal God, the Lord, our Lord and Savior, the one who sits on the throne for eternity. Jesus Christ. Rather than a utility, the word of God is an invitation into the story of God. The word of God is an invitation into a relationship with the eternal God. The word of God is not just so we can live a better life, but that we can have life and life abundant, and that is only in communion with our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. It's a story it's a story we get to join into, a story of a father who loves his children so dearly that he will do anything to win them back. 
Though these children are rebellious, though these children mess up, God will do anything up to and including dying on a horrific cross for his children. This is the story he wants us to join into. This is the relationship he wants to have with us. It's an invitation, not a utility. And in this passage, God gives us two invitations we're going to go over real quick. Two invitations. We see this first invitation in verse 6 where it says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. Life. And this is the invitation to thirst. The invitation to thirst. Now, why thirsting? Why thirsting? Why not drink? Why not replenish? No, the invitation to thirst. Nobody wants to thirst. Nobody wants to feel thirsty. It's not a comfortable thing. Nobody enjoys it. It's uncomfortable. But thirsting is necessary. It's necessary. We need to thirst. If we never thirsted, we'd never know we had a deficiency. If we never thirsted, we'd never know we're dehydrated. If we never thirst, we'd never know we need certain nutrients and certain things in our body, and we would become unhealthy and die. We need to thirst. This is what thirsting is. It shows that there is a deficiency, that we're lacking in something. You may be asking, okay, what are we lacking in? Well, we are lacking in a relationship with an eternal God. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that he has set eternity in the human heart. Eternity, the things of eternity, the things of God, the things of heaven, we're all striving towards them for goodness, for love, for kindness, for peace, for patience. We're striving for these things, but it feels like we can never attain these things, so we're constantly thirsting because God has set these things, these eternal things, into our hearts, but yet we cannot satisfy it. We don't have the water of life that Jesus has. We can't satisfy this in our own desires, in our own pleasures, in our own ways. There's only one source, and that is Jesus. This passage is written by the Apostle John, and the Apostle John also, if you didn't know, he wrote a gospel, and, and this passage is referencing a, a, a story in his gospel. In John chapter 4, we have the story of the Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritan woman, she goes to the well at midday, which is a strange time to go to the well. Nobody else is at the well at that time of day. It's, it's, it's hot. It's, 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 it's lonely. It's, and, and it's strange that she would do that. And, and we, can, we, can, uh, we can infer from this that there's a reason she's not going when all the other women of the town are going to the well. And we find out earlier that she, or later in the story that she's living a promiscuous life, that she's jumping from one man to another man, and the man she's living with now isn't even her husband. And, and in this day and age, and, and in that society, that was very taboo. And because of that, she feels shame. And she can't go to the well at the same time the rest of the women of the town go because she knows they'll shame her. She knows they won't accept her. She knows that she is doing something wrong. And so we pick up this, this passage in, in John 4, and, and Jesus meets her at the well, and, and Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, being the wa water in the well, physical water, real, normal, nice, bottled water. 
They will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Upon hearing this, the Samaritan woman is intrigued. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, some guy tells you, he says, hey, I got water. It'll keep you young forever. It'll keep you living forever. It'll keep you beautiful forever. And she's like, that sounds pretty good. And she says, Jesus, where's this water? She says in verse 15, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. See, it's more than just a physical thirst she has. She has been living a lifestyle of sin. She's been jumping from man to man, relationship to relationship, household to household, to satisfy a need she has, to satisfy a thirst she has, to satisfy a desire in her, and she cannot satisfy it. She cannot. And that's why she's stuck in this cycle of sin. This is what God means by thirsting. She had a need. She was trying to satisfy it with new intimate partners, new men. But she was never satisfied. And that's why the man she was even living with now wasn't even her husband. She was never satisfied and stuck in a cycle of sin, a a cycle of disappointment, a cycle of shame. And she had a thirst that needed to be quenched. She had a desire. She had a deficiency And she didn't know what it was, she didn't know how to fix it, she didn't know how to fill that hole in her heart, so she just went to relationships, went to a new partner, went to someone new to try and satisfy that desire, but he couldn't satisfy. Much like us, until we recognize that this thirst we have cannot be satisfied by means of the world, means by ourselves, until we realize that this thirst is only satisfied by Jesus and bring it to Jesus, we will never truly have life. We will never truly have life from the water of life. We'll never have it. We'll always be jumping from one satisfaction to another satisfaction, from one desire to another desire. Well, well, well maybe if I just get in this new relationship, oh, 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 well, maybe if I just go out with my friends tonight and forget about my problems, you know, what, whatever it is, you know, if I just get home and have another beer, If I just go home and just, you know, smoke a joint or something, it'll satisfy my need. It'll satisfy this hurt, this desire. If I just ignore the issues in my home, ignore my wife, ignore my children, it'll satisfy the need I have. There's a thirst. There's a hole. There's a deficiency that we all have. But the Bible says that that is eternity written on our hearts, and that will never be satisfied without Jesus. And this brings us to the next invitation of uh, Revelation 21. In verse 7, it says, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and he will be, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the invitation to overcome. The invitation to to overcome. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I, I always find myself back at this passage when I find myself in a hard time. When I find that I, I've messed up, when I feel ashamed of myself, I always come back to this passage. When God's looking for those he calls his sons and his daughters, he's looking for those who thirst, but not only that, for those who overcome. 
to those who accept this invitation to overcome, we will inherit the right to be sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, sons and daughters of the Alpha and the Omega. But what exactly are we overcoming? And what does this mean to be a son or a daughter of God? Well, remember what this invitation is for. Remember the goal of Scripture, the goal of, of the Word of God given to man. These invitations are for us to join in the story of God, to join in relationship with God, to build an intimate partnership with our Father in heaven, the Alpha and the Omega. Our goal is to find our place in the complete story of creation that God has started from eternity past and into eternity future. The children of God are the people who find their place in redemption, who find their place in God's story and in relationship with God. There's a passage earlier in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where it talks about those who overcame. And it says, they overcame him, him being the devil, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not live their, love their life even when faced with death. So what are we overcoming? Okay, the text says we're overcoming Satan. Yes, but we must realize something. That Satan is overcome not by us, not by our own strength, but only overcome by Christ. Only overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And he will do that work. By Jesus' authority, he will cast down Satan into the lake of fire for eternity. That is what Jesus does for us. But what is it that he asks of us? We will never be able to fully do it on our own. We will not be able to do it without the authority of Christ. But more importantly for ourselves, more importantly alongside being co-heirs with Christ, we overcome by our testimony. By our testimony. And in order to have a testimony, we have to overcome ourselves. We have to overcome ourselves. And this sometimes I think is harder than overcoming Satan because we have the authority in Jesus' name to cast out demons. We have the authority in Jesus' name to, to, to resist the enemy and he will flee. But we have to resist ourselves. We have to overcome ourselves. It says those who do not love their life even when faced with death. Our testimony. How do we overcome ourselves? How do we fix the deficiency within us? Well, John chapter 1, the apostle says in verse, uh, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has overcome it. Our darkness has not overcome it. I apologize. I'll read that again because it's powerful and I don't want to mess it up. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light has shined, and it will not be overcome. So what is this light? Well, John tells us that this light is Jesus Christ and the work, the complete work he has done in our lives. This is the light. We don't just shine any light on our problems. We shine the light of Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me up as we close this is the importance of the two invitations, to thirst and to overcome. We must thirst. We must realize we have a deficiency. 
I mean, it's not hard to know that we struggle with things. It's not hard to know in temptation. It's not hard to know in, our, in, in the storms and in, in the winds and the waves to know there's something that we're struggling with, that there's a deficiency, that there's some kind of lacking. It's not hard to know in those situations, but what do you do with that? Well, we must realize there's nothing outside of the eternal God that will satisfy it. Not another hit of the bottle, not another relationship, not a new job. It won't satisfy. The only thing that satisfies our thirst is Jesus Christ. And he will give us a drink from the spring of the water of life. The next invitation is to overcome. It's not enough just to recognize we have a deficiency. We have to overcome that deficiency. That deficiency is only overcome when we shine the light of Christ in our light. I shine the light of Christ in our life. See, when I was in high school, uh, I used to tutor math. I, I said in my last sermon, I loved science. I was a nerd. I tutored in math. I loved it. And for anyone who's ever helped in with math, maybe you've taught math, maybe you, you've tutored math yourself, you know that you know, if you just give the person you're tutoring the answers, they'll never learn anything. Nothing changes. There's no breakthrough. There's no overcoming. They just get the answers. No, the proper way to tutor is first, you have to tell them they're wrong. That's the thirst, the deficiency. There's something wrong. This equation, this problem, this thing you're struggling in your life, there's something wrong. And then the proper tutor won't just leave them there in their mistake where they're wrong. No, they'll counsel them through the struggle. They'll work with them, meet them where they are, meet them in the problem, and help them through it. And that's just like God. He's just like the tutor. See, God doesn't just exist to say, you're wrong here, you're wrong here, look at my word, you're falling short here, you're wrong here, you're living in sin. That's not his goal. It's not a utility, like we said before, just to make life better. It's not a utility just for to you to realize you're doing something wrong. No, it's to give us life, and life more abundant. And so he walks with us through the struggle. He sticks with us through the problem so that he can give us the power to overcome, so that we can overcome the darkness in our life. And we can become sons and daughters of God. I love that passage. You know, because we feel so weak. We feel so deficient in our thirsting, in our longing. We feel, God, I don't measure up. God, I'll never make it. I'll never measure up. I'll, nev I'll never make it to the standard that I think I need to make it to. But all he does is ask us, cry out to him, to try, to make space, and he calls us sons and daughters. I don't feel like I deserve that. I don't feel like I deserve to be a son or a daughter of the Most High. I don't feel like I deserve to be a son of the King, to live in eternity with the God who is perfect, but yet he calls us sons and daughters. And from that love of a father, who wants us to join into the story of redemption. From that love, he gives us the ability to overcome. 
He gives us His Holy Spirit to overcome. I find it interesting that in that final verse, verse 8, where it talks about those who, who are set apart for the second death. In verse 8, the first category of people who face the second death are the cowards, the fearful. And I think it's a little harsh. You know, they got enough to worry about. They're already cowards. They're already fearful. Life's probably not that great for them. But yet they're the first people set apart for the second death. But it makes sense in this context. God has given us the thirst. He's given us the conviction. He's given us the chance to overcome, the chance to shine light in darkness. He's given us his body, and he's given us the body of Christ, those around us, to help us overcome. But the coward doesn't try. The coward sticks in their cycle of sin. The fearful says, I'll never get over it. The fearful says, I'll never receive the power to overcome. I'll never have the ability to get over my addiction. I'll never fix my relationship with my family. I'll never get past this temptation. I'll never get over this hurt. The fearful doesn't even try. And so they're stuck. Maybe they're, they're stuck in that first death in life. That first death, that cycle of sin, that cycle of disappointment, that cycle of thirsting without quenching until they reach that second death. Church, let's not be those people today. Let's resolve today that we're going to make the effort. We're going to make the space for God to shine his light in our lives. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. I love that word. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. When we shine a light on our darkness, on our problems, and on all our issues, light and the power of God is given to us to overcome. So I'm going to ask us to stand to our feet today. In a moment, the worship team is going to sing. We're going to open the altars. And our, our pastors and our, our altar workers are going to come forward. And this is our opportunity to shine light on the darkness. What do you need to overcome? What is the thirst? What's the deficiency? Well, God tells, tells us we're not supposed to go through it alone. We're not supposed to just figure it out. No, he's given us Christ and the body of Christ. And, and the body of Christ is the church is the saints, is the altar workers and the pastors and the elders and the deacons that are going to come forward. Shine light on your darkness. Tell them what you're going through. Tell them what you're struggling. Now, this isn't a, you know, a Catholic confession where we're going to tell you five Hail Marys and four Our Fathers. No, it's a process. But you're not supposed to walk through it alone. And you can't walk through it until you first shine light on it. And then you will be given the ability to overcome it by the body of Christ. Father God, you're so worthy of our praise, oh God. As we've sung over and over, you are worthy, oh God, of all the honor, of all the glory, of all the praise. Yours is the kingdom forever, oh God. I thank you that you ask us to join into that kingdom. That you make the invitation for us to come into that kingdom. The invitation to thirst, oh God. The invitation to overcome, oh God. I pray that this would be the morning that we overcome. 
This would be the morning that deliverance comes. This is the morning that we say we're done with the chains. We're done with the strongholds, with the shackles, with the addiction, oh God. We're done with the struggling, oh God. We want to overcome, oh God. We're not going to be the coward. We're not going to be the fearful. We're going to step out in the authority of Jesus Christ and receive the invitation to overcome, oh God. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and that you meet us here at the altars. You meet us here when we step out in faith, oh God. We're going to dismiss the service. The the altars are going to be open. If you have to go, you can go. What I want to encourage you as the pastors come forward and as our altar workers come forward, makes today the day we overcome. Makes today the day we shine a light on the darkness in our life. Amen. God bless you. Have a blessed morning. We'll see you this Wednesday for all.